to where are we silmarillion film project that's where we are uh so we're getting ready to get going here we've got a we've got a crew with us here tonight um oh and i forgot to ask did you um uh nick and marie did you guys want to do webcam or audio only i mean i can it's up to you i can change i made my, my hair less crazy just in case so you know, we're good <laughs> I can turn on my webcam if you want me to. Either way, it's I, it's I'm not. Uh, I just I gotta oh oh change my. Oh uh, wow, that's not quite fully less crazy at the headphones. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's see. I gotta reorganize my windows here. Okay. Hmm, whatever. All right. Okay, Dave. <coughs> We're all doing it. There we go. Everybody's doing it. <laughs> right. All right. Okay. I think I'm going to try to figure out how to organize my screen here. I'm just going to just going to overlap them like this. There we go. Sorry, Dave, you were blocked by the Signum logo on the Twitch stream. Fix that. Okay. There we go. All right. Look at this crew here tonight. Fantastic. Okay. Very good. I am. I think I am ready to start. Okay. Ready to go, Dave. Anybody else ready? Okay, here we go. Starting in three, two, one. Pausing for the convenience of the editors. Hello and welcome to this special Christmas edition of the <laughs> Silmarillion Film Project. <laughs> I'm your co-host, Dave Kale, coming to you from uh, a place that doesn't feel much like Christmas, other than all the Christmas lights in front of the houses, but otherwise it's about 60 to 70 degree weather. <laughs> um, uh, but I am excited to nonetheless be bringing you this uh, holiday special edition of so probably our is this going to be our last one? Of it is. Yeah, this will be the last one of the calendar year. Yeah. So wow, another another year in the bag. For That's the right. Silmarillion Film Project, a podcast right. that never ends. <laughs> uh, and I am joined, as always, by Professor Corey Olson, the Tolkien professor. And by our tonight, uh, we've got four people on the line, yeah. and we're all on. This is like a. This is like. A, this could be a watershed moment. Everyone's <laughs> That's, on, right. Uh, That's right. But we've got our head writers, Nick Palazzo and Marie Prosser. How are y'all tonight? Good, thanks. Happy to be here. Yeah. Good. Glad. Well, wow. I'm super excited about this episode. We've got a very exciting episode tonight. You need to steal your line, Dave. That's right. That's, great. No, that's fine. Please do. Um, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm. Corey and I are very excited to start complaining about it. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I've got a whole set of complaints all queued up, so we're going to be great. Uh, yeah. It's episode two tonight. Going through the outline of episode two um, after uh, having finished episode one and then done some other stuff last time. Um, 
I was going to add something, and I've already forgotten what I was going to say. So never mind. Oh, that's right. I remember. I was going to say, Dave, here I am in quite the different meteorological situation where it's like 15 degrees and there's a foot of fresh snow outside. So um, I'm very Yuletide festive up here in New England today. That sounds lovely. Just thankful not to be out of power. So first snowstorm in which I didn't lose power this year. So there we go so far. Wow, it really is a special night. It is a super special night. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah, thanks everybody for joining us. This is going to be great as we continue to go through our outlines uh, for our episodes. Um, uh, so you may remember that episode one, we, uh, we did the, the primary plot was the arrival of the men into Beleriand and the meeting between Finrod and Beor uh, and the rest of his people, their decision to go to Nargothrond, and then the, uh, the C plot, B plot, was the... Um, was Aradel uh, in Gondolin and the beginning of her unrest and uh, desire to leave uh, Gondolin. Uh, so um, uh, anyway, uh, so that's um, uh, that's where we were for episode one, and now we're moving into episode two, where Aradel takes center stage here in episode two. So that's going to be uh, that's going to be really interesting to see. A few announcements before we begin. Lots of things going on here at the end of the year for Signum. Uh, first thing I would want just to remind people of as we come to the end of the tax year, if you're thinking about making uh, 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 deductible related donations, I just invite you to remember Signum University uh, as we are a fully tax-exempt institution and uh, you would be welcome to get your $300 tax deduction that everybody gets on top of their standardized deduction by donating to suggest a suggestion if you should feel so inclined uh, to remember Signum during this tax time. Um, the, se the second announcement is that we have uh, uh, coming up er, here through December 24th, we're still running our special on our Anytime Audits, a really fun gift to give folks normally a $95 tuition to get access to the full set of lectures and class materials from any one of our Signum courses, uh, and that is on sale for $75 until December 24th. Uh, you can get a gift certificate to give that uh, to someone else. They can choose any course from our catalog that they want. Um, uh, so it's a, a, a really fun gift. Uh, we do have our Signum Clubs coming up. The uh, Signum Academy Clubs are uh, our new, our newest program. This is a, 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 an, an extracurricular program uh, for students from third grade up through high school. Um, we're doing uh, an online book club, creative writing club, uh, Conversation Club, Foreign Language Conversation Club, and Translation Club, uh, where kids can learn to read Anglo-Saxon, uh, which is kind of awesome. I think you have to admit. Um, uh, so that's going to be uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. So all four of those clubs are going to we're going to be uh, beginning running those in January. It's an ongoing monthly subscription to uh, to join. So you can go uh, to our webpage, uh, signumuniversity.org, and, and uh, find your way to the club's page uh, from there uh, to register. Um, we also have an event coming, uh, two events coming up soon, both on Sunday. One, Fireside Poetry uh, for the Winter Solstice happening uh, at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on December 20th, uh, the, our festive holiday gathering that we always do, poetry poetry reading uh, on Sunday evening. And then after that will be the script discussion. If you want to get in 
earlier on in the process. Of course, here in this episode today, we're going to be talking about um, uh, the outline of episode two as a more or less finished project product. If you would like to be involved in the earlier stages of these discussions, to be working out and uh, voicing ideas and suggestions for how you think some of these episodes could go, uh, then feel free to join uh, uh, Nick and, and, and Marie and Rhiannon at the uh, discussion uh, there. Um, you, you can find it on our Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash um, and that's at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time on Sunday the 20th. So that is all the stuff that's coming up and going on now. Episode 2, The Wide World. So, um, Aradel. Now. So, Nick, I'm pausing here because I'm debating whether or not to, we probably really should start by talking about Aradel, even though I know you're really keen to talk about the Bayor stuff, but we really should. Aradel is the A plot, so we should really give Aradel, uh, you know, the central focus here. Um, uh, okay. Aradel leaves Gondolin. So our, our year is 355. So remind me, what was the year of episode one? How long has it been? It's been 15 years. 15 years. So it was 340 in the last episode. It's 355 now. Okay, so 15 years have passed. That's not going to be especially noticeable in Gondolin, apart from the fact that her preliminary uh, misgivings and everything have now, like, blossomed into firm decisions and actions, right? But um, if we were only doing the Gondolin plot, it wouldn't be at all obvious that much time had passed, which seems perfectly appropriate, because from their point of view, it really hasn't, right? Um, But... um, in, in, in multiple ways, right? Both because 15 years is not so long to the elves and because it's Gondolin, right? I mean, again, it's like the time bubble that, you know, Lothlorien wishes it could be when it grows up. So, um, so yeah, absolutely. Um, but obviously, uh, as is so generally the case in season five, where the time change is going to become super obvious is in Nargothrond with Beor and the rest of them and especially with Beor who is now significantly elderly uh, compared to episode number one um, okay um, so I will go through let me just summarize here what's on the uh, what's on the slides uh, to give the sort of the overall outline uh, of the thing and then we can kind of go through some of these things point by point um, so we have Aradel leaving Gondolin and under the auspices of being an official messenger to Fingolfin right this is a diplomatic envoy not just a she gets permission to leave because she's my sister thing um, so that is explicit um, but she travels instead south towards Doriath and is turned back at the forest of Brethil, after which there is an attack, and the attack is put on by Tevildo uh, and his feline troops. Uh, it, this is uh, this is uh, by way of giving Tevildo uh, one last whirl before we kill him off later on in the season. Is that the? This is kind of his last uh, his last moment in the in the spotlight. His last win. His last hurrah. Yeah, his the last, last hurrah. <laughs> yeah. I like his last win. Yeah. He's got to get something. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, that's true. I guess, you know, getting killed uh, uh, later on is will be time in the spotlight, just probably less entertaining for him. <laughs> um, okay, and then 
after the attack, then we've got Arathel traveling through Nandungorthep alone, um, going to find the sons of Feanor, arriving at the fortress of Kelgorm and Kurufin in the Pass of Aglon, and they're not there. But she meets dwarves on the road, uh, dwarves who are traveling to Doriath. She joins them, and then she learns about Aeol from the dwarves who know of him, and she enters Aeol, uh, She enters Non-Elmoth on purpose to meet Aeol, uh, there at the end of the episode. Okay, so that's the outline uh, that you got. Now, so one thing that I feel that uh, we have to sort of acknowledge from the beginning, this is a fairly significant deviation from the text, right? We've, we've uh, now, and some of that is very uh, sort of clear, as I think anyway, based on all the discussions that we've had, it's pretty clear the thinking behind some of that at least, right? That uh, in particular, we wanted to ensure that Arathel didn't sound merely fickle and sort of childish, right? So we don't want her just being like, I'm so bored in Gondolin, nor do we necessarily want like, well, I'm not going to go see Fingolfin. I'm going to go see my friends, right? I mean, it's, it's so the choice to not have her, you know, because in a sense, we've kind of railroaded her even more into going to Fingolfin, right? She needs, like, a good reason not to go to Fingolfin because she's been sent on an official diplomatic mission, and it's even in line, in theory, right, with what she says she wants, right, with her sense of mission. Um, I mean, going to Fingolfin seems like a really good idea from everybody's perspective now, not just a, you know, your big brother is trying to keep an eye on you and pass you off to dad kind of situation like it seems to be in the text. Um so the rationale to go and so so the the first interesting choice, right? The first departure that you guys did here um, was you still have her not going to Fingolfin like she's supposed to, but instead of having her go straight to the Sons of Fanor, you have her heading south towards Doriath. So t- tell me about the decision there. We wanted to give her a destination that was not necessarily immediately the Sons of Feanor. Um And Galadriel had been living in Doria mm-hmm. for a good long time. Right. And the thought was that Arathel might want to also uh, revisit Galadriel, who had some ideas about Beleriand and everything that would be different from the rest of the Meldor. So seeking out Galadriel wouldn't necessarily seem like a departure from her stated goals and she's totally going to get to visit Fingolfin eventually like she's not not doing what she's supposed to do right so her idea is basically I'm I'm going to Fingolfin I'm just not going to go straight to Fingolfin right first I'm going to gather information before I go and since I'm right here and Doriath is right there I might as well pop in visit you know my cousin see take the temperature of things in Doriath uh, right, and see, see what has changed in Doriath since Gondolin was founded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, so that that makes sense. I mean, especially given the geographical distances, right? I mean, that when she comes out of Gondolin, she is right across the street from Doriath, right? So it does make us... It, it's not like I'm going to... It's not like she's saying, I'm going to pop down to Nargothron first and then go back up. Right? She's not going that far out of her way. She's just going to uh, 
collect information. It's funny, though. I mean, it does create a, a comical sort of situation, right? I'm going to go to Doriath, um, you know, behind the girdle of Melian, because that's less isolated than where I've been, right? Because compared to me, they're right on top of current events in Doriath, right? Um, and that's kind of funny, but I like it. Um, okay. So, okay, so I can see the rationale. So that's her reason. Um, what was your reason for wanting her to do that instead of heading to the Sons of Feanor? Well, one thing is it's, it, and Rhiannon points this out, is that the the visit to Doriath actually is part of the the text of the Cimmerillion. So right. she does actually go there. So trying to kind of preserve some of the pieces of the trip. Also, they have to know at this point that Nendungertheb is not a great place to go. Right. And right. so it's reasonable for them to at least think, hey, at the very least, we should try to travel through Doriath because that's way safer than going through Nendungertheb. Yeah. And less visible than, you know, like, less high profile than traveling all the way around up through, um, across the top of Dorthonian in right. full view of <laughs> Angoradrim. <laughs> right. <laughs> Not that, I mean, distance is a thing, but. Yeah. They, like, they tend to make choices to not travel too much um, in that direction. Sure, sure. But I can imagine, given sort of how proactive we've been making Arathel and thinking even of her, like, farewell tour that we gave her in season four before she entered Gondolin, I can see, you know, the Arathel character that we were envisioning basically wanting to say, I want to talk to, I want to make yeah. the rounds, right? I mean, I could, yeah. I could see her saying, I'm going to go to Doriath, through Doriath, come out, talk to the Sons of Feanor, loop up, top, talk to Angrod and Ignor, and then head over to Fingolfin when I know everything, right? When I've, when I've right. been briefed by everybody and we're ready to have a real council and I can give him, you know, I can brief him on everything, including Gondolin, and, and we can right. make a real plan. Um, yeah, she, she knows where Fingolfin is. Right. Like, she isn't, and he's not going anywhere. So. Right. Like, she already knows what Fingolfin's uh, stance is on the situation. So getting more information is certainly a good um, strategy for her. You'll notice one thing that I, I really, like, this is, was one of my main concerns for this episode for Our Those Plot, is that there's, like, three episodes worth of stuff that happens to her right. in this episode. Right. You know, it would be very easy to stop her story in this episode at the point where she escapes from the cats and then do another episode when she's in Nendungertheb and then another episode when she gets into Nanelmoth. Right. Yeah. I was Um, I was noticing that when I got to that point in the outline about like right after the fight with the cats, it, it almost felt like the end of an episode. Right. It almost felt like I mean, if it felt like a point where like a, a point where where we have kind of ended episodes before it, it felt it felt a little familiar that way. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, I, here's a Stephen H has a really good question. Um, how aware um, how aware is Fingolfin that there are supposed to be envoys and what is his reaction when he realizes they've been waylaid? I don't think he knows anything. Right. Right. Um, I was actually just typing that. Okay, right. Because the eagles, 
the Eagles don't do messenger service, right? It's, I mean, they're just, they inform, you know, they keep an eye on stuff and may inform Turgan about what's going on in the outside world, perhaps what they see, but they're not, they're not running messages for Turgan, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Correct. There's been no communication from Gondolin to the rest of Valerian okay. since the founding of Gondolin. Okay. Okay. So nobody's going to know except Turgon, who, uh, you know, or rather the elves of Gondolin. So, okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. Right. So what we had to do in order to get Arathel from gone from leaving Gondolin to meeting Ale. Um, Ale, yeah. by the end of the episode, we need to be very, very judicious right. with what we spent our time on. We had to be very, very careful. We couldn't spend, you know, and a lot of the decisions that are made here are made specifically to get as much done as possible in as little time. Right. 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 Um, yes. Yeah, Stephen is saying, "Well, so Fingolfin will be unaware that Aradel has died later on." Yeah, who's yeah. going to tell him? Yeah, I she think died so. In yeah, no, right, no, because she's going to die in Gondolin. So yeah, sure, it wouldn't be. Yeah, no, he would first find out in Mandos. Yeah, yeah, that's no, that's right, that's right. <clears throat> oh, hi, <laughs> right? <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, when, those times when you're not happy for your daughter to be there before you to welcome you there. Yes, uh, exactly. Exactly. I mean, she'll get better. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, okay. Okay. Yep. No, that's that does seem that does seem necessary. And I mean, I would have to think that that's true in the text as well. I mean, there's no reason to think that any news goes out of Gondolin. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I have to think that in Tolkien's version of the story, that's also true, that they might encounter in Mandos. I mean, OK, no, we know they don't really encounter each other very much in Mandos. It's not exactly a social hangout spot. Um, that's not it's kind of not the point of Mandos. But anyway, whatever. Um, okay, <laughs> let's, let's not go there. You, you mean people don't have, like, after-death tours? No, not Mandos? so much. Yeah, no. No, there's not, like, happy hour in Mandos. They just don't do that there. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can complain to management, but that's apparently how it's run. So um, uh, it's all about solemn <laughs> instruction there um okay but anyway it does raise a good question about what exactly people do do there they are they learn their lessons unless they're fan or basically <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> i mean until until all creation ends is a long time yeah but is, some is people Fanor have just... lots of lessons to learn <laughs> is he is he just spending his time delivering futile speeches i Probably. I have to imagine he is very alone mm-hmm. and very on fire. Right. <laughs> very alone and very on fire. That seems to work. Uh, and not in a good way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
<laughs> Brianna says we need a spin-off show about the halls of Mandos. Most boring show ever. <laughs> the show in which characters never interact with one another. No, I mean, it would be, yeah, it's basically Elvish Purgatory. It's Elvish Purgatory is what Mandos is, essentially. You know, they're learning their lesson in their own way. That one's a, that one's for sure a, a single cam half hour workplace comedy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like the good place. <laughs> exactly like that. Exactly like that. Rihanna says Fanner has to write, I will not burn boats on a chalkboard <laughs> hundreds of times. I will not kill my. Yeah. You know. Except the trick is he has to do it in Daron's runes, and that's why it never gets done because he refuses. Oh. But anyway, um, so but back to the speaking about being judicious about what we talk about. Okay, so in the episode, right as you said, every scene with Arathel has to has to be you know has to have a particular storytelling purpose, right, and even a, right. a sort of a character development purpose, so that right. we we because. We've got a lot of things going on. So, like, the, the cat, we, we don't spend much time on the cat attack. Like, we sort of establish right. the fact that Tevildo attacks, and we get, like, a corpse, but we don't get, like, much in the way of, like, fight scene or anything. Right. It's it's meant to have some level of excitement, but the point of the scene is not an extended, drawn-out fight scene. It's that Aradel feels some level of responsibility for having been the leader of this group of people mm -hmm. said, we're going to go here and we're going to do this. And they all got attacked by cats. So that's like her first inclination or then that this, uh, this whole mission is maybe not going to go well. <laughs> right. Right. And this leads to our second departure from the text. Everyone dies. Right. Yes. That is the departure that is in the text. Yes. So we didn't want so, we don't want survivors returning to Gondolin to tell tales. So, okay, we this was the subject of much discussion. I was guessing. <laughs> uh -huh. And so, I went into this with very little in the way of strong feelings. Okay, on in either direction of this, and when I saw that there was like conflict brewing around this issue i was i was starting to be prepared to say okay let's table this discussion so we don't spend all night on it and we'll 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 hash it out on the message boards but the more that it got talked about and and florian was was very much in the favor of the everybody dies camp mm -hmm. and he made such a fantastically good case okay that eventually i i, I was like i you know what? I you're right, and so let me. Okay. So here's the thing. All right. Extra Cimmerillion texts do state that the um, that the guardians are uh, are Glorfindel and um, Ichthelian, Ichthelian, and, yeah. and whatnot. And you know the Cimmerillion itself says that they are lords of um turgan's household now of course that doesn't tell you much because like technically all of these characters are lords of their own houses in their own right and so like lords of his household would essentially mean like his bodyguards right. that are not these people right um but the problem is that we 
don't have a lot of time to show these people who have survived, we don't have time to tell their story. Right. And if we don't tell their story, then they look kind of incompetent. You know, like that was my fear don't... about Gorfindel and Ecthelion from the beginning. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They had one job, right? right? Protect right. Arathel. They fail and they give up. Right. 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 And even if it's not, if it's just nameless soldiers, like we're not really gaining that much. And we're showing people who have just decided Arathel is dead and why. You know, like, right. does Sevildo tell them? Does, you know, do they find any evidence? Do we have time to show them finding this evidence? Right, right. Yeah, we so don't have... We don't, we... question of why does Aravel not go back to help the people that she separated from and why do they not help her is in the book described as they lose each other and they can't find each other. But that implies we'd have to spend time showing some level of searching. Right. On both sides. And reasons for giving up searching. Yes. Yes. Um, yes, I agree. I mean, you're right. I hadn't thought about this much either, but this actually strikes me as a really interesting example of one of those kinds of things. And we've talked about this on many other occasions, of course, in the context of film film, but there are a lot of not just, you know, characterizations or whatever, but there are a lot of story elements that work really well when they happen in one sentence in a, you know, broad view historical summary, right? Like this, you know, then, you know, they lost each other and couldn't find one another and she went on alone and they returned to Gondolin. Like, you can say that and it's fine. But when we come down closer to the characters, when we come down close to the narrative and we're beginning to think through things that that level of narrative, that that kind of story does not really think about, Right. It doesn't really ask you to think about. Um, yeah, you're right. Like we have to. It it, it begins to feel very different. Um, somebody basically somebody screwed up pretty badly if it happens the way that it happens in the published Silmarillion. Well. If. If, like I said, if we had three separate episodes to tell the story. Right. Or if this was the only story we were telling in this episode. Like, if the entire story was focused on Arathel, Arathel's journey, mm -hmm. I believe we could make it work because the B-plot would be, you know, would be other people searching for Arathel. We would see her searching for them, and the, and them not finding each other is a natural progression of the story. Right. That gets the story that we need to be. Um, actually, it's funny. Marie and I were talking about this uh, some time ago. So... Uh, Marie and I talk a lot about the show Supernatural because uh, my wife loves it and Marie loves it and I don't. So, <laughs> lots to talk about. There's, um, so there's a scene in it where there's a character who there are two characters and they get ambushed. One of them gets knocked out, and when he wakes up his friend is gone and the people who ambushed them are gone. And so he's wandering through the woods alone. He gets to the place where they were supposed to meet and is expecting to wait for his friend until the very last second. Right. And his friend's already there. And not only is his friend already there, but he has fought off the people who captured him. 
and gained the objective that they came here to do together all by himself. And he's telling the story, and I'm immediately thinking, oh, this is a shapeshifter. This this is actually the bad guy right. in disguise because right. right. that, like, I don't buy any of that. <laughs> and then he says this detail that only the real character could have known. I'm like, what? what, what like that was you were clearly setting this. this up. <laughs> what, what is this? And that's my concern is because when you tell the audience about action after the fact, and you tell them things, and you show them show characters saying things that the audience knows isn't true, they look like they've either been bamboozled or that they're lying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so just having them show up after the fact like right. yes it it they can tell turgan what happened but why like why do we believe that story when we already know that it, that's not what happened right you know right yeah i mean the problem i have if folks survive I mean, the problem that I have with trying to depict the 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 text from the narrative, somebody's got to give up too soon or both have to give up too soon. I mean, sure, you can say that Arathel gets lost in Nandun Gortheb, but why does she go there? Right. They're not in Nandun Gortheb when they get ambushed. Right. So she's got to pack up and go to Nandun Gortheb, which is not in the direction. I mean, OK, maybe maybe we could say like, well. She's like, maybe they survived, but got into Dandan Gortheb. In which case, why does she think that? Like, are there signs that would lead her? Is she just that bad of a tracker that she can't tell that no one, in fact, has gone in that direction? Um, is she just guessing that they've gone into Nandan Gortheb? In which case, she's wrong and looks a little clueless. Um, so why does she give up and go away? And why do they give up and go home and assume that she's dead? Do they have strong reasons to believe that? I mean, I think about Beleg. Right. The persistence of Beleg in pursuing Turin. Right. And I'm like, why does the escort of Arathel not show a fraction of Beleg's dedication to the job? Right. I mean, think how far Beleg goes. Right. Finding Turin, you know, uh, chasing down Turin when he's after he's captured and everything and coming. And, and you know, when he goes back the second time to find Turin and the outlaws. I mean, like, seriously, they couldn't stick around for. I mean, OK, so. So she had gone into Nandun Gortheb. Why didn't they follow her into Nandun Gortheb? She might need help, right? If they had any suspicion that she'd gone there. So I, I mean, it is. It does strike me as one of those things that is really hard to depict in exactly the way. Again, it it comes off easily enough in you know as mm-hmm. one sentence in a paragraph. You know, in that kind of really broad historical mode that the Silmarillion is speaking in. But when you actually zoom down into it and try to enter the psychology of the characters in in, in question, it gets a lot harder. I hadn't really thought about that with this instance. I hadn't either until we were talking about it. Like everybody said, dying certainly makes it easier. If she knows for a fact everybody's dead, then all she can do is go on. And now when she goes on, she's neither irresponsible nor clueless. Now she's brave. Now she's intrepid, right? right? I shall not be deterred even by the fact that my entire bodyguard is dead. In fact, I feel a greater responsibility to go on, uh, you know, so that their sacrifice not be for nothing and, and you know, my, the mission still succeed and all that kind of thing. I mean, it's it's all kinds of understandable and even admirable at that point. One of Florian's concerns in plotting this entire episode was 
to not treat Arathel as a damsel in distress. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. so much of the story could easily go in that direction. Yes. She can be Snow White lost in the woods and like tripping over her own shoes yes. if we wrote her that way. Like that would fit. Absolutely. It would fit the story. Without... It absolutely would. Yeah. I mean, it, and he's it... like, he kept insisting, she's a huntress. She's good at fighting. She's competent. Like yes. we can't have her doing things that look like a Disney oh, princess. I'm yes. so helpless. Yes. You know, yeah. Like he, he was very adamant that we not portray her that way. And yes. this was one of the instances, but not the only instance where mm -hmm. he, mm -hmm. he was really um, arguing strongly for avoiding that. No, I agree with that principle, certainly. And I mean, it's a choice that we made about Arathel from the beginning, right? I mean, in the text, she is she is an active character. She does make decisions. She does do things. But at the same time, she's also an object, right? She's tired of being cooped up with her brother. And so, but then she goes and the first thing that happens is that she gets cooped up by somebody else, right? She just goes from captivity to captivity. She goes from passivity to passivity. She's active to connect in between. But I agree with you. The, you know, damsel in distress stumbling through the forest. I'm not saying that that's what Tolkien had in mind when he described it, but it, it as you say, it would fit. It would fit the text, and I agree with that. So I agree. This, you know, having her be the only survivor is definitely is definitely a better way of accomplishing that. Because um, now, now the it, question yeah. the question came up um, of how, and I think Steve asked this as well, of how Turgon finds out. That's of course the obvious question, and the first thing that I was right. thinking of when we were right. uh, when I was reading this, um, because right. obviously it makes a big difference, right? I mean, Turgon. Right. I, I feel like Turgon has to if he doesn't find out. Now, it's possible that he could just not know and be wondering for a long time, mm -hmm. you know, for years, what happened until she returns. Right, but that's not as strong because, like, why no. doesn't he check into this? Like, why doesn't he investigate this any further if he thinks that she could be alive? Yeah. And, you know, um, and so what I had thought of is that if she sees one of the party members dead, she could. So um, I, I believe Rhiannon gave her this this cloak made out of the skin of a giant cat. Um, that this this white rough cloak that and if she takes that off and lays it down on the body of one of her dead party members you know, and it soaks up his blood. <clears throat> and then she gets kind of backed off into Nandungartheb. She knows everybody's dead, so she's got no reason to try to fight the the cats at this point. And one of them grabs the the bloody cloak as a as a trophy. And then at the very end of the episode, in like the tag of it, um, one of the eagles come, lands in Gondolin with the dead cat who still has the bloody cloak, right? And Turgon is able to divine everything that he needs to know from, from so he that. recognizes the, her. The eagles dead. haven't seen her, so they have no reason to think. The eagles themselves have no reason to think that she's still alive right. after that. She's in Non Elmoth by then, and the eagles won't be able to find her there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, and it certainly makes sense that Turgon would ask, uh, you know, would ask the eagles to be on the lookout for her after some time had passed. <clears throat> makes all kinds of sense, right? Um, you know, that seems like a thing that he would do. Um, 
they find the evidence of the fight because um, some time will have passed because she will have gone down and it's not like the next day or something after she leaves. So, um, and they wouldn't, the Eagles wouldn't find her body, but they find her cloak. And so that's, that works. That works as a way. The other thing, I mean, it has a massive impact on how she's received when she gets back to Gondolin, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, is a yeah. huge difference between we thought you were dead and now you were alive. Wow, that's amazing. This is wonderful. And dude, where have you been? Why have you not reported back? We sent you off to Fingolfin and what the heck, right? You know, is kind of the response you'd get if he had heard nothing at all. Um, uh, you know, I was expecting that... Uh, you were, you were, you know, you're supposed to come back. You were supposed to report in. Um, do we, do we need a little bit more than the cloak to, to, to really communicate? Like, like, like what, what do they think happened to her? Well, what I would say is that they would think that she was eaten by a giant cat. Okay. That's what I was wondering. Like, is, yeah. is that kind of the, the, the were, were there, cause they don't find her body or even like a significant body part. Right. right. They find her cloak well, and a lot of blood. Yeah. So, In the so jaws like, of a giant cat. <laughs> yeah. That's... Right. Yeah. 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 Right. Either escaped or, uh, ran off, was carried off or was like completely obliterated. Right. And you know, if we, she's going to be off the grid uh-huh. almost entirely. I mean, like, Eagles would not have an easy time finding her, obviously, in Nan Elmoth um, and not even in Nan Dungorthab. Like we have a bunch of windows where she is going to be not readily findable by Eagle. Right. So I'm wondering, I mean, we don't necessarily have to do the cloak thing. I mean, if they just find the, you know, find bodies, evidence, I mean, it doesn't have to be definite. Like they don't have to come back with proof necessarily. They just have to tell Turgon what they saw that, you know, they, right. they saw a place where there was a fight they f- found at least you know a few bodies and and feared that and it looked like you know there were more and it looked i don't know i mean the the thing about the physical object about the cloak is it makes it possible to do non-verbally right so we can just do right. it as a tag instead of a whole scene right then scenes we don't have a lot of time for right space for right you know and- the cloak was a signature item of arabelle's so giving it some meaning in the story allows it to stand in for her right. for a death scene. And yeah. um, so it would it would convey to the audience pretty directly that the cloak equals Zara though, because she's been wearing it right. pretty consistently right. for yeah. the last few episodes. <laughs> yeah. But like I said, that what I like about there not being a survivor is again that why is this why did the survivor go back? You know, why did the survivor go why didn't the survivor go try to find Arathel and help her? You know, like that's 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 a question that we would have to answer. And I don't I don't see again, that's where we come back to either cluelessness or whatever. I mean, like they're going to look either incompetent or foolish, you know, um, they, yeah, because if 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 Turgon would have questions about like about whether or not. Arathel's dead and he's removed by a couple hundred miles. Yes. How much more would a person on the ground right there who just saw her right a little while ago? Yeah. How much more would they have questions? Like, yeah, I mean, I, exactly. I see her body. Why? How? Why on earth would I think she's? Yeah, alive? I'm trying to imagine uh, this like, scene. 
right? Like Survivor finds her bloody cloak or whatever, right? And they're like, oh, this is Arathel's cloak. It looks like she was injured or something. But her body is not here. Like I see no body of hers, right? There's right. bodies of other people, but I don't see her body. Right. Um, so I'm going to assume she's dead, right? And then he goes, and then Turgon's like, so she's dead? And he's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure she's dead. How are you sure? I found her cloak, but you didn't see her body. No. Like, what makes you think she's dead? Because I don't know. I mean, like, it's just, that's a, it's. Yeah. 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 No survivor. Uh, I, I think no survivors makes a lot of sense. Yeah. the The deal was we would need some information to get passed along. So, yeah, either the cats would have to claim to have killed Arathel, or someone would have had to have thought they found evidence that she had died, but yeah. it wasn't her body because she didn't die, and then that information gets passed along. But the main problem is that the audience knows that Arathel is alive. Mm -hmm. immediately after all this because we're going to follow her through Nandungarthab in a mm -hmm. couple minutes. Mm -hmm. So regardless and there's reason of for what... her to move on because everybody right. else is dead. Right. So if we try to convince the audience that her companions who survived the attack did their best job to find her and do everything, but they don't find her and they think she's dead, then they failed. And whatever we're trying to tell there isn't going to work because the audience knows she's alive. And once the audience knows she's alive, Turgon's going to look dumb for thinking she's dead or silly for trusting the word of who's telling him she's dead when they're wrong. If an eagle just says, hey, here's this bloody cloak, it's your sister's, or doesn't say anything at all, just hands it over, right? then he can have a moment of grief. But he's and in suspense, Suspe suspense right. and doubt right. and fear for years. Right. Yeah. Right. So we, right. we can empathize with his grief without thinking, Turgon, you idiot, go check it out. There's no dead body. <laughs> right. She's right. right there. Yeah. Whereas, again, right. everything is simpler and cleaner from both directions. Um, and because, as you said, like, we need to show them giving up. But again, I, I they had one job. They have one job, which is to stay with her. Why would they turn back? Like, it's just what they would have they would only turn back if they knew that she was dead i mean they've got to at least be willing to follow her for you know i don't know a quarter the length the time of and distance that beleg was willing to follow turin <laughs> you know i mean that's just what i keep coming back to um yeah no that's really interesting that's really interesting and and i don't mind keeping turgan in suspense you know drawing his own conclusion, resisting that conclusion so that when they meet again, he doesn't have to be like, Hey, I thought you were dead. Right. And so he can be like, you know, my heart told me that you were alive all this time, but I didn't know. And, you know, or whatever, you know, sister, I feared you were dead. We can, we can give, we can, we can put him on whatever side of the fence we want to at that point, but there will have been very legitimate reason to fear that she was dead. And he could have had the Eagles out looking, but they won't find her. They won't find her right. because the first, when first they begin to look, he'll send them right back out, right? He'll send the Eagles right back out, find her, like check, double check, you know, come back and tell me if you either find her or her corpse, right? But they won't find either because she's in Nandungorthib and they won't see her in Nandungorthib. Right. And then if they look again later, she'll be in Nanelmoth. So they, they'll miss her again. So that yeah, works. And this way, we we have Turgon at the beginning of the episode sending Arathel off, and Turgon at the end of the episode, right, with his you know suspension grief 
situation. So we're not going to see him for a, a while. Right. So right. dropping him again, dropping him halfway through the episode. Yep. Didn't feel right there either. You know, because right. we're not going to see him for a while. Right. No, I like that. And I mean, and, uh, you know, and that's fine. Like we can we don't uh, when I'm thinking ahead to like what his mindset is, you know, that's that's a concern for later when she comes back, you know, thinking about how she's right. received and stuff. Right. Uh, and we don't have to have every moment of what we're talking about, like actually happen on screen. Right. That's stuff that can have happened. You know, we. It's just not necessary to show it. Right. You know. We don't right. need to see him going through all five stages. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. No, exactly. Out the exactly. Search party. Like, yeah. Like that. Yeah. That stuff that would just happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. Though it strikes me that we could um, we could drop that as a tag or a an eagle. Uh, like a like a, a an Easter egg or something. Like basically, just at some point when she's in Nan Elmoth, right? And we we you know kind of pan back and show eagles flying overhead, you know, implicitly mm. searching for her, right? That people could you know either make the connection or not, you know, whatever. But uh, that's something that could be done in a purely visual way, you know, on screen in five seconds. Um, right. Right. Um, so of course the times to for her to get spotted are the times. From when she leaves that Nangun uh, Dungerfeb, I, I don't know why I have so much trouble saying that. Yes, um, going up to the Pass of Agalon and then going down to Nanelma. Yes, which brings me to another problem that we had, and that was why does she go to Nanelma? It's not on the way to anywhere. Yes, that she yes. would be pl- trying to go. Yes, like there's no reason to go there, right? Um, yes. The only vague sense that I recall from the published text is that she goes to see the Sons of Feanor. They're not home. So she turns back in the vaguely westerly direction to go. We're not quite sure where exactly her plan B is after she finds the Sons of Feanor not at home. And turning back to the west, there's Nan Elmoth, and she becomes ensnared there for some reason. And again, I get Nan Elmoth isn't super big either, so like you could easily miss it. It's avoidable. Why does she wind up in there? Yeah, which is why we decided to have her get intrigued by discussing the matter with the dwarves and think, well, you know. I might as well check this out and go off on of her own accord, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, yes. Yes. Um, yeah. So anyway, the time there, I'm not worried about the time as far as like her being spotted by Eagles. Um, I think, look, as you say, we're not going to actually dramatize this, right? We're not going to show right. this on, we're not going to show Target and the Eagles on, on, on state on screen no, at all. Right. Um, it's also far, far enough away from where she disappeared that yes yes she would have had to pass through Nandungortheb alone in order to get there and the eagles could very plausibly think that that's unlikely and not be searching in that direction and instead right. be searching in the direction you know that they were told she's supposed to be going which is up towards the north and on the way yeah. to to Fingolfin she she travels 100 miles through new spider town you yes. know like yes you guys may not remember spider town from from season two, uh, season three, but yeah. it's a real place. It's a real I'm place. Yeah. And, yeah. um, 
And the other thing, of course, is that I would, and again, here we're just, this is just like world building going on. This is not, it, it wouldn't be something we'd show on screen, but the other thing that I right. can imagine in the like immediate aftermath, right, while she's in Nandungorthab is when Targon is sending out the eagles and they come back and they're like, look, we've been all over the joint. We see all these right. things. She's not there. And then it would be like later on, you know, later on he would, you know, have them go and look again. But that would be after she was in Nan Elmoth. And again, as you say, they'd be searching also to the north. There's a lot of continent for the eagles to cover. Right. Well, and that's an important thing to remember is that Valerian's a big place. Yeah. You know, and there's a non-infinite amount of eagles to yeah. do the searching. Yeah. You know, yeah, no, and, it's, and, and Stephen H. I disagree. I don't think the Eagles look stupid in doing this. They're they're doing the best they can. They've got a whole continent to search, and she went in the opposite a in the opposite direction than what they were expecting, and told the direction they were told to look for her. And b, she went through Nandon Gortheb, which they could plausibly suspect she wouldn't be able to do and live. So, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of reasons for them not to find her over there, right. Apart right. from the fact that all of this and all of their instructions and their discussions with targets are all happening off stage anyway, so it's only by right. implication, uh, you know, this is right. this is only the kind of stuff that people would learn, you know, in the, uh, um, you know, in the bonus material, basically. Yeah, on the Comic Con panel. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, but yeah, and. Yeah. Go on. No, I was going to say, but but again, but it's very different from the survivor situation because the survivors are like right on the ground and have her trail right. to follow, and would right. have to immediate and would have to stop that right away. And and I mean, and again, if they had reason to think she went into Nandagorthab, which if they were at all good at tracking, they would, then right. they would be the more ridiculous for turning around and going home rather than trying to help right. her. Right. Um. So, of course, at the beginning of uh, the episode, this is part of one of the other plot lines. We had to get Fingen out of the area. Right. Right. We don't, um, so we, we Fing- don't want a traffic jam here. <laughs> right. So Fingen pencils off a letter to dad, like in the very beginning of the episode. And then he goes off with Kelgorm and Corfin to do a thing. I don't remember exactly what the thing was that he was supposed to be doing or if we even decided on a thing. But. They're off doing a thing. They've got things. They've got things to do. Yes. I mean, yeah. yeah, you know. Oh, and by the way, speaking of things to do, the Eagles also have other things to do than right. look for this one other yeah. elf princess. Yeah. Like, They're doing Turgon a favor, but like scour the continent till you find her indefinitely is not their remit, you know? Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like they also have to keep an eye on, you know, Thangoradrim. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They have, they have good, they, they have a job. They have a job, and their job isn't, you know, just to be, you know, his... Um, they are not tame eagles. They're not tame eagles. Yeah, they're not his traffic drones. I yeah. mean, Turgon can't, like, pull out a moth from his collection and, like, <laughs> yes. just summon them at will. <laughs> That's not how it works. They're, they are not for hire. No. No. I, yeah, they, I, think, I, feel like a, I feel like on a Tolkien show, we can get away with, like, I mean... I guess, you know, the casual fan always asks, why don't the Eagles do X? But I I feel like for the most part, we can get away with, like, Eagles not doing things like this because it's kind of understood that that's not what they do. We established it in in episode in uh, season four. Where Orindor lays the whole thing out and explains 
Yeah. I'm not here yeah. to do your stuff for you, man. Yep. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah. He's got a job. And he and and I also I mean, I like the and going back to the discussion we had before, you know, back in season four about how big the Rondor is going to be. And I, I mean, we still made him sufficiently imposing that nobody's just going to mistake him for, you know, a carrier pigeon. Right. You know, he's like right. even Turgon approaching Thorondor to ask him a favor is coming hat in hand, right? You know, this is not like... And Turgon dispatched the Eagles to do his work for him, right? That's It's not the relationship. I mean, heck, Thorondor is dangerously close to being too large to scratch Morgoth's face. <laughs> right. Without taking off his head? Yes. Right. <laughs> yes. Like I mean, well, presumably the you know the mightiest of all the Valar can can take a fair bit of tearing before his head comes off, but yeah. you would think there would be scratches like from the knee up to the face. If... <laughs> yes, especially yeah. if he was as large as Tolkien described him. If he's as large as Tolkien described him, Morgoth would have to be like a hundred feet tall. In which case, the f the duel with Fingolfin ends up looking like Tom he's and Jerry. Absurd. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not. Yeah. Sorry, Professor Tolkien. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I agree. And you know that's, and in in the professor's defense, there, um, it's one of those things that like he, there, there are so many things that he. Like a lot of these things that we're bringing in are like ideas that he had at different points, which if he right. were going to fully naturalize within the narrative, he would have had to fully retcon and work everything mm -hmm. out. And that's exactly what never happened with the Silmarillion was bringing together all of these ideas that he had and making sure that they all work together consistently. Um, and right. so therefore, also, when you just throw together all the details that he ever said, they don't all work because he didn't do yeah. that work. Yeah. And we have to remember, he's making myth. And right. in mythic stories, not all the details have to jive. It's okay. Um, we're telling a version of this story. Right. Like, you know, if we if we come at this with the assumption that these were real, that there, there's a real history that's involved here and there are real people who wrote stuff down. Right. There are definitely different versions of this story. Right. Right. Absolutely. You know, I mean, tell tell me who actually burned the Library of Alexandria. I dare you. You know, <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. No, agreed, agreed. Okay, so so Arathel, knowing the rest of her companions are dead and that there's nothing she can do except either give up and go home or try to continue her mission alone, decides she's continuing her mission. And why does she go through Nandungorthab, the path less, less traveled for very good reason, instead of heading up north to see her father? And I'm thinking the answer is she's... Uh, do we have her escape, you know, like, you know, exiting stage right pursued by a cat? Is that what's how she gets into Nandungorthab in the first place? So the way that we were imagining it at the time of the script discussion was kind of a standoff. Okay with her back to the forest and Tavildo's kind of messing with her and she winds up run, er, running off. Right. But it is, it's, it's pretty much to escape Tavildo and his crew that yeah, she's, cause she's like, she's outmatched. There's too many of them. Right. And, and she knows there's all this open terrain for her to travel across if she heads up to the North and, and, and there's nowhere to go. So, okay. And she certainly, obviously in that situation, of course, she also can't go home. 
because she'd lead them straight to Gondolin, right? So she, you know, that's, that's another the, problem. The one thing that she certainly can do. Oh, sorry, I, I skipped a bit. Being turned back, we we skipped that part. What happens with the turning back? Who turns her back? Um, I think so we just... the March Wardens of Doria are up in the Forest of Brethel, mm-hmm. and that's where that scene is taking place because we have to introduce the Forest of Brethel before Hallett's story gets there, mm-hmm. and the March Wardens are in the area because of the cat infestation problem. Right. And right. they can say, look, Thingol has said that only children of Fenarfin get to go into Doriath, and that is not you, so you're not welcome. But they can also say, and watch out for the giant cats. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> watch out for the cats. Yeah. Yeah, or the, if you want to go around Doriath, don't go through an Andangortha. Like, they can, they can warn her about the danger she's about to enter into to alert the audience to the danger she's about to travel into. Right, right, right. So there was a couple of things we were trying to do with that scene. And okay. mostly to set up stuff for later. That makes and sense. And to remind everyone that Doriath is still closed for business to everyone who's not Finrod's immediate family. Right, right. Um, and also kind of shows the consequence, I mean, the the effect of Thingol being a jerk, basically, and what's going to... And of course, also, though no one will know this at the time, serves as a lovely foreshadowing of Gondolin. Right when Gond- when Gondolin is going to shut its gates against anyone who even who comes to it, you know, hate pursued, um, and they won't let in anybody, even you know, no matter what their situation. Um, so that uh, Thingol kind of got there first, refusing entry to somebody from Gondolin who was hate pursued or almost imminently hate pursued. Um, yeah, no, I I like it is what I'm saying. That's that 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 works. That works, um, and so. But we don't have. We're, we're not. Ha- uh, uh, we're not having Beleg or somebody. These are. These are. Uh, these are. These are extras. The March Wardens. Uh, I think we're going to have Beleg in the. Other He's going to be over front, waiting for Howlett. Um, right? Yeah. In a couple episodes, yeah. so I was not planning to put Beleg here. Right. Um, Obviously, right. we could have Beleg or Madeline be around for these scenes if we needed them, but this was just meant to be foot soldiers. Yeah. Really. No, I, I, I do kind of like that. If we have everybody who comes to any border of Doriath, no matter which border it is, be meet Beleg, that it, we get the idea of like he's the ubiquitous March Warden. Like, I am, there's no part of Doriath's boundary that I'm not constantly in. Um, <laughs> we, get, we, we, we could give that impression, which could be comical. Every time yeah, well, Doriath that's... is in the distance, Beleg pops up, you know. And the... Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a thing that happens in a lot of um a lot of fiction and a lot of shows is that you always run into a main character whenever you go near someplace where a main character could be. Right. Right. Plus I also like the idea. I mean, I like the, if they're faceless then they also obviously have no authority to make any exceptions to the rule, right? You know, right. They, they'll, they'll see this is a crappy situation. They'll feel genuinely bad about it. But this is above their pay grade. There's no, Whereas with Beleg, like, Beleg's pay grade is higher, right? And, of course, right. that's going to be more of a conflict for him when he meets Haleth and them later on. Like, by the, time, by the end, he's going to be starting to want to bend the rules for Haleth. Right. Um, but 
better to have her meet with since there's there can't be any possibility of negotiation or else she's not going to be where she right. needs to be uh, if we really need to have this door closed in her face better to have it people who who don't have the authority to right make any exceptions presumably Beleg would have the authority to say bring her back to their camp at least in a place of safety while he sent word to thingle yeah yeah, you know. Whereas, whereas the rest of them are just like, yeah, you're not all. on the guest list. There's n- nothing I can do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. That makes sense. Okay. Good. I just wanted to. Ch- I realized I had skipped over that bit. So okay, that makes sense. So she goes over to the fortress, and they're not there. And so Fingen is there, was there, and they've left had together. Had been there. Yeah. Right. Okay. So right as you see, she just like narrowly misses her brother there, which is mm-hmm. ironic. Um, Celebrimbor can be there, yeah, yeah. Okay, Celebrimbor's there. I, I don't remember what the situation was with when we discussed that. Um, basically, uh, Kelgarm and Kerfin have to leave the fortress, and so Fingen is leaving with them in the earlier scene. Um, I think Rhiannon had s- suggested that um, Kerfin could leave Celebrimbor in charge. Mm, yeah. Um, so Arathel could interact with Celebrimbor if we wanted him to. Yeah. What? Why doesn't she stay? The dwarves are leaving when she gets when she arrives. Like they, so, the way that we had that set up is that the dwarves were leaving, so she had a chance to travel with them. <clears throat> um, she has some interest in meeting all the peoples of Middle Earth, so this is a chance for her to kind of get to know them. And potentially go around the south end of Doria to um, to to look up everybody else. Right. right, right. Her her mission is about bolstering the siege and finding the Noldor new allies. The dwarves are a potential new ally, so she's very interested in getting to know and more she about has their no situation. personal experience with them. At all. Sorry, so it's a chance encounter, yeah. and she takes the opportunity, saying, "This is cool. There's this is." So she immediately sees the possibility here, decides she wants to roll with this and work on it, and so she's going to travel with the dwarves to get to know them better and see what the possibility. Because she can always come back when they're back. Because I mean, they've left. They might be gone for like five years. You know, like yeah, you don't know. Um, they're elves, right? So, like, it's, it's like a weekend trip, right? So, uh, um, yeah, yeah. So she would have time to go with the dwarves. Okay, I like that. So it's it's not it's not that she like is giving up on them or anything. But she could, if Celebrimbor is there. Well, I mean, even if he weren't, she could leave a message for them. What what, what message would she leave? She would also hear that her brother was just there, right? Right. So that's also handy. What message would yeah. she, I mean, she'd leave messages for Fingen and for mm-hmm. and for Caligorm, right? I'm not dead. <laughs> right. Not, not to, <laughs> d- d- don't know that if you were suspicious that I was dead, but <laughs> in case rumor reaches you, yeah, no. Um, um, yeah, I, so... What would she say? What would she want to say? You're Aradel. She could say that she was... Ex- okay. Yeah. So Steve was asking about this earlier, but she could say that she is planning to visit Fingolfin 
mm-hmm. at some point there you know she wants to travel a bit she described and, the plan i'm going to talk to everybody we're going to sort right. things out and then we're going to have a yeah and then i'm going to go talk to Finn and then she, right and this also because a lot of people were have been wondering like why on earth doesn't does nobody why do none of these people search for her search for her yeah right yeah and the reason being that she told them that she was going to be traveling and right. you know like she'll get there when she gets there right 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 yeah um and they wouldn't have any reason that unlike her guards they wouldn't have any reason to think she was in distress um they know that she's traveling traveling by herself or with a very small guard would not be strange that's what Arthel always did right so yeah. um it's nothing new yeah so her coming out of gondolin is big news her traveling around on her own not so much um mm-hmm. Yeah, Rihanna and I agree. I think she would give some ideas of the direction um, uh, that that she's going. Yeah, yeah. Um, that is to say, like, I, I, I'm thinking in terms of, like, she would give him an idea about, like, what she was planning to do. She'd mention the dwarves, right? Like, I'm going to go, I'm going to talk with the dwarves and see, because I have this idea, right? Um, but I'm going to come back around and we're going to, you know, we're going to talk. Um, especially if she... If they believe she, if they're like waiting for her, basically, right? Um, and she doesn't give any sense of time frame. Again, we don't need to play out the whole conversation, but uh, it is worth asking. You know, why does nobody search for her when she sets off on this journey and never returns? Um, but simply, like they, I mean, if there were a conversation about this, the conversation would go something like. Well, Arthel's pretty independent, right? We all know that. Like, she has some plan, and she's off pursuing some plan, and she said she'd come back, so we'll, we'll you know, hope to see her again soon. And when, at what point, would they start to dredge the river for her body, right? Years right. later, maybe? I mean, it wouldn't come up. And certainly long Decades. after she's in Nan Elmoth. Yeah. And because there was so much time for her to travel, they don't quite know with her, um then they wouldn't even know what direction to look. They would just know she'd never turned up, you know, up in the north and, you know, so wouldn't know. So, okay, now that that works. That makes sense. Um, tell me more about her meeting with the dwarves. Um, are these dwarves that we've met? Are these new dwarves? These are new dwarves. Okay. The dwarves that we've met in the past have all died of old age by now. Okay. Um, right. Unfortunately, that is a symptom of mortals in Middle Earth. Yeah, yeah. But uh, so these are brand new dwarves for us. They are trading with Doria. They have had interactions with the Feanorians. So they can kind of bring Aradel up to date on some news that she wouldn't be aware of. Right. But also with a dwarf's perspective. So they kind of view the Noldor as outsiders, obviously. And they're going to tell her things in a slightly different way than she would hear. Demanding outsiders, no less. Right. What kind of outsiders? Demanding outsiders. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, their yeah, main they, contact is Karen there. So. Yeah. They're maybe yeah. not super thrilled with Karen there's whole road, but yeah. uh, in general, you know, they have positive relationships with the Noldor. Right. Um, yeah, so this is an opportunity for us to meet new dwarves and um, probably start putting out the idea that there are, in fact, two dwarf kingdoms here in Valeria. And up until now, we've mostly been dealing with Belagost, but Nograd is going to get thrown into the conversation because Eil has a personal friendship with the king of Nograd. Right. 
we were suggesting, if that's okay. Right. Um, um, because yeah, Telcar sure. obviously didn't like Ale very much. Right. And Telcar's been hanging out in Belgaus, so we wanted to give him a, a very high up connection among the dwarves. Yeah, right. Yeah. No, and that we makes wanted sense. to make sure that the dwarves were nervous around him. Like, he's a training partner and whatnot, um, and he's got connections high up with the with the dwarves, which is one of the reasons why Ale want, why uh, Aritha wants to meet him. Right. Uh, but right, it follows. I, I I do like that. It follows very logically on, um, you know, f- going from the conversation with the dwarves and and the way that that leads her both physically and um, you know by way of diplomatic segue to to uh, to Aeol. Mm-hmm. And the dwarves very clearly do not enter Nanelmov. That's a one-way ticket to Gonsville. Right. Okay. So they have met Aeol. They respect Aeol. They would probably fear him to some extent. Mm-hmm. Or at least be... The cre- rank and file guys, presumably. Yeah. More like the relationship between the Rohirrim and Galadriel's kingdom of Lothlorien. Right. Um, you know, healthy respect, a good deal of fear. We just stay out so that everyone is safe. And she, Ardethel, would probably dismiss their f- concerns as kind of those ignorant of the ways of elves, right? When, when they start talking about like, ah, yes, like it is a, like a forest of sorcery, you know, like an elvish sorcery, that she would be like, oh, okay, yeah, all right. Um, I mean, that's that's adorable. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay, right, elvish sorcery. Well, I, I I think I can handle that, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, I'll just go one elf sorcerer to another, and we'll talk it out. Um, yeah, yeah. And especially if there's evidence, as there likely would be, that the dwarves are themselves, I mean, you know, there's going to be some prejudice and misgivings in general. I mean, it's not like they're going to be total. I mean, they're, they're going to be obviously uneasy with the elves, right? Um, and so anything that they say against Aeol is going to have an asterisk in her head, right? Because she's going to be like, oh, well, but look, like, they don't trust me either. So, you know... Um, Right. They're probably just paranoid or, you know, ignorant or xenophobic or all three. Right. Or na 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 Yeah. So, um, yeah. So anyway, I th- that I think that word that that makes sense. That works. That works. OK. Um, so this then this along with everybody dies is then the 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 other thing which felt to me like the biggest departure from the, the story, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you guys completely convinced me on the everybody dies point. Um, so that was Florian's thing. He was the everybody dies champion. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was, was definitely that, his idea. That was really smart. Um, okay. It's now, nice to have somebody else thinking about like the, uh, you know scene economy and right. you know where things have to end up by the end of the episode right right yeah no it's 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 it was a very good it was a very good thought her setting out in order to meet Aeol and Nan Elmoth strikes me as probably the biggest departure from the story mm-hmm. and of course I get it 
I get the damsel in distress thing. Totally get the damsel in distress thing. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't want an early scenes Disney princess staggering through the forest, um, you know, with a, a montage of like scary owls and, and, you know, like branches of lightning in the sky and stuff like that. Right. I get that. But. If she's going in on purpose to meet him. We're miss. We're losing. We're turning away from a pretty big mythic moment, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the she is entering into creepy magical forest and finds the tall dark stranger who brings her into his web. Um, I'm not saying there aren't reasons to do it. There totally are reasons to turn away from that. But that's. Especially the way in which it's the anti-Baron and Luthien, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The parallel we, we or the anti-parallels actually, there. Yeah, we did not actually take out the part where he's doing magic and uh-huh. ensnaring her and she gets turned around once she enters in. The only part we changed is that she goes in on purpose knowing that he's there. Right. Because otherwise, the, 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 the big question for me was why? Like, oh, there's a creepy forest. Let's check it out. Right. Doesn't seem very mission oriented, if right. you ask me. Um, so giving her a reason to go in there, and that seemed to me to be the only reason that she could go in there. Um, yeah. Is I can see that. I mean, especially since, as you say, it's not exactly, you know the crossroads of Beleriand right there. I mean, she doesn't have to go into the creepy forest. Um, and she just got out of a creepy forest. Yeah. Yeah. She's I mean, arguably just, at her fill but... of creepy forests. And yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's still, we still lose the Baron and Luthien parallel, you know, which I might be a, a price that we have to pay. I just don't want to pay it without caution. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and let me say, so, I, th- I do like the logic of, you know, the way that her her mind is going from one idea to, to the other. Right. From pursuing the mission. I'm going to like first she was just going to do a briefing. Right. I'm going to do a briefing with folks. I got sidetracked, had a little issue. Cats. Nandan Gortheb, but I'm back on track, right? Okay, we are pa- having passed through Nandan Gortheb, which was not the plan, but now I've done it, right? So uh, I'm, I'm going to, here are the Sons of Fanor. So I'm going to go uh, see my bud Kelgorm, and we're going to, uh, we're going to, uh, I'm going to continue the plan. But then, of course, she gets double sidetracked, right? But not sidetracked. It's an upgrade, right? She then right. sees the dwarves, and she's like, opportunity, right? Okay, no, no, this is a better plan than the original plan of just, like, getting briefings, right? Instead, I've got an opportunity, and she will talk to Kel... And, and again, this is actually why I really like having Celebrimbor there, um, so that there's a, a named character she can have a conversation with to learn about the dwarves. And so, and what she would learn is, y'all have known about these potential allies for all this time, and you've done so... Like, okay, you trade with them? That's it? Come on, like, don't you see the opportunity? You know, surely you guys can see the big picture here, right? So she has the big idea, and she's going to pursue it. So then, so now she's left plan A, and she's on plan B. And from them, the dwarves, she learns about Ale. And this would be to her like, oh, man, this is the sweet spot, right? This is the key. 
if we can, if there is already this elf lord who, and also, by the way, why has nobody allied themselves with him? Right? I mean, here's this, like, all, you know, oh, man, like all of this. So the first thing she's, dis- okay, second thing. First thing she discovered was an army of cats. But the second thing she discovers after leaving Gondolin is all of all of these, the, 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 the continent is lousy with potential allies that nobody else is taking advantage of, right? Her cousins have completely dropped the ball on this. And so dwarves, ale, other, you know, other elf kindred entirely, we can bring him in and he can deliver the dwarves, right? He can introduce us to the dwarves and this is perfect, right? Oh my goodness. So I guess I, so I, I love that rationale. Like it strikes me with the character of Arthel as we've developed it, I can absolutely see her going down this path and deciding that entering Nan Elmoth to find him is a great idea. So I'm not saying that I dislike it in that way. Mm. I'm just saying, I'm just counting the cost. Right. And the cost, what we lose is the um, the Baron and Luthien parallel. Yeah. The serendipity so, of the meeting. Mm-hmm. So, yes, there is that. Um, one thing that. And we're like and obviously also the parallel to um, Thingle and Melian, who met similarly. Right. Um one thing that's important to note, though, is that she is going to have an experience with fairy, right? Right. Whether and and this happens also. This is a mythic thing that happens where somebody goes seeking out the white stag or the yep. you know yep. the the fairy princess who can grant a wish or yeah, you yeah. know like this right. happens as well. Right. Right. Um, so it's not it's it's different. It's different, but it's not not mythic either right 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 um as long as we make sure to maintain the fairy and drama mm-hmm. that's that's mm-hmm. happening here as she's entering yeah and yeah and it's a different version of that story you know there are different elements but it is a, it it is essentially a similar story in a lot of ways it's Still the same story to him. Yes. Yeah. To because to Ale it is serendipity. Yeah. He's he's the one creating the fairy and drama. Yeah. yeah. But she's news to him. What if? The the big problem, the biggest problem with their meeting, was to make sure that we didn't lose all the tension mm-hmm. right and so we talked about a few different things we talked about the potential of having Arathel get into danger and having Ale, you know who has created the danger of course step in to, to save her and whatnot. but every time that we did that Arathel felt like she didn't know what she was doing mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Like what? She falls down a hole. She gets trapped by vi- like, what could happen there that doesn't make her feel foolish, right? Um. So that yeah. so yeah, so it, one it, of the things just she had to do was make her meeting with him scary, and the best way that we could that we could find to do that was uh, his silent servants. Is like creepy silent servants, right? Yeah. Um, 
Because it almost feels like he's also controlling them, mm-hmm. like they're automatons. Mm-hmm. And we don't know that that's not true. Right. Because our description is only coming to us through what Arathel, well, I guess Maeglin, uh told the people of Gondolin later. Right. So we don't know that he's not controlling them. Right. <clears throat> Right. And I like, as Rhiannon says, it would demonstrate that his power is greater than hers, which is good. I like that. I mean, that is to say, what what I like about that is that it gives her... She would respect that, right? So, okay. Because here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, like, what's Aradel, what's, what's Aradel thinking? So she hears from the dwarves, like, oh, yeah, creepy forest of sorcery. We don't go there or else we'll die. And she's like, oh, okay. She's probably thinking, like, I just came through the creepiest forest ever. Right, exactly. And also, like, sounds like Doriath, right? So, I mean, it's like, and I get it. Like, you know, random person comes up to Doriath, they're going to have a bad experience. You know, and of course, the March Wardens turned me away, but whatever. Anyway, like, elves don't just do that. They don't just suffer from the, uh, from you know, mm-hmm. so whatever. So apparently the dwarves are repelled by whatever this is. But whoever lives there, the dude who lives there... um, you know, just it's just a, like a, a defense mechanism, not unlike the girdle, right? Presumably, Arathel has been to Lorien, which is like the Ur magical forest, right? Right. Which, right. if one of us walked in there, like it would be super creepy because we don't understand what's happening. Right. 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 So she comes in and she experiences scary phenomena, right? There's darkness. There's the sense of fear. There's the being turned around. There's the, um, which again, I think would not be very unlike what, you know, a random person, like a random human or a random orc trying to get into Doriath would experience, right? So Mm -hmm. that's how she'd contextualize it, right? She wouldn't be like, wow, the person who lives here is really sketchy. She'd be like, okay, Defenses, and she might even be like, okay, pretty impressive defenses, actually. Like, this guy, this guy, this is a, I'm, 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 I'm actually, I'm on the threshold of a serious player here, right? Like, this guy is capable. Look, look at the defenses that he's put around his realm. And so even in a, in a sense, even if she fails to get in, even if she's ensnared or something, right? I mean, like, I can imagine her, like, you know, she's like, you know, engulfed and wrapped up by brambles or something like that, right? You know, it's, I, I don't know what, like something like this. She's actually deterred from getting in. That would be she, like a good impression. She ha- can't be too been... cool, though. She yeah, what? But having. Oh, sorry. She go, can't go be too. She can't be too cool. Yeah. No. She, no. No. Like... No. No. I agree. She has to actually be afraid, right? No, I see. Yeah, Marie, go ahead. I see. At the end, the way we're going to resolve this is that when she does meet him her greeting is going to reveal at least a little bit of how impressive she thinks he is. Right. Because right. of all of, of what she has heard about it. Right. And the idea was to have it be pretty heavy on the flattery because most guys upon meeting a beautiful elf princess who's flattering <laughs> them terribly, would, you know, right. maybe be somewhat sympathetic to what right. she's saying. Right. I mean, right. At a guess. I can see that. <laughs> I, wouldn't throw... <laughs> I wouldn't kick her out. Right. So if she, at that point, after she has experienced all that, is like, and wow, the defenses you have on this place are amazing. Right. Like, would fit. So Mm -hmm. she could compliment it afterwards. Right. Even if it was quite disturbing to get through. Right. Even, I mean, the. 
Yeah, so I like that. I mean, so I and, and I agree, Nick, as you were saying, she gets wrapped up in it. She is, in fact, terrified. Whatever, ha- whether it's illusions, whether it's disorientation, whether it's darkness, whether you know, staggering in the darkness, whatever way we choose to manifest this, um, she would it would be a terrifying experience. But then when she comes out of it, right? And this is where this is where we could do. Sorry, what I'm doing is I'm trying. I'm like. I'm clinging. I'm trying to find a way to do the Baron and Luthien parallel anyway, yeah. basically. Um, because, of course, the element... It seems to me the essential element to maintain the Baron and Luthien parallel. And it's reversed. It's reversed. She's Baron. He's Luthien. Mm-hmm. Right? Baron has come through. He's just passed through Nindungorthab, right? Um, and the mountains. So he just came through Nindungorthab the wrong way, right? Uh, and <laughs> on the wrong axis. Uh, and he gets through uh, the edges of Doria. So he's actually just had a quite similar experience, right? Coming through the girdle of Melian himself. And it doesn't mean, like, yes, fate brought him through, enables him to go through, but that doesn't mean he had a pleasant time as he was going through the girdle of Melian, just that he managed it, in fact, right? He succeeded in passing through, <clears throat> but it was probably difficult and almost certainly unpleasant. But And there he is, weary, PTSD, right? He's, he's in a bad place. And what happens? He sees Luthien dancing in the distance and it's like, Oh, right. You know, so that moment of, you know, rest and beauty and you catastrophe when he's just been on the brink of death and has been suffering for so long. That's one of the essential mythic elements, I would say of the meeting between Baron and Luthien. And we can do something similar to that. Right. So Rhiannon brings up an interesting point here. Um, and I think this would actually work great if her, if his silent servants also seem kind of trance-like, mm-hmm. you know, like, like not zombies, right? But mm-hmm. not, not zombies. No, <laughs> not zombies. <laughs> not zombies. But <laughs> what not, are his not... silent servants? Well, no, let's go, let's, let's come back yeah. to that. Let's come back to yeah. that. So, Rhiannon says that she could stand still and seem enchanted when she first lays eyes upon Ale. So, like, she walks in, and he could be doing something, like, totally innocuous. Like, he's just going about his day, right? Yeah. But he's completely aware that she's been in the forest this whole time. Right. Right? And he's been drawing her in through his ensorcelment. Right. And she sees him, and she's transfixed in the same way that... um, that Thingle was when and he Baron comes is. upon yes. Melian. Yeah. And, you know, he asks her a question and she kind of like snaps out of it and, and answers the question. And they start, and as they start to have a dialogue, the more of a dialogue they're having, the less she's having to like shake off the, the enchantment. Yes. And it's becoming like actual real appreciation. Right. And and that's an important thing. Like the the flattery that she's giving, it can't be disingenuous. It has to be genuine. Yeah. yeah. So it has to like it 
Like it has to seem real. Otherwise it's going to come off super corny and we're not going to believe her. Yeah. Right. No, I like that. She came here with the explicit intention to butter up a potential political ally, right? That was her goal Mm -hmm. when she came. And instead what she is, finds herself doing is expressing genuine, um, genuine respect Mm -hmm. and interest. Right. Because yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, go ahead. Go ahead. We wanted the name of Finway to come up also because he knew Finway. He knew Finway. Right. Yeah. And right. when that comes up in conversation, she's like, oh. Yeah. Big deal. Oh. He's a big deal, this guy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Heavy hitter. Heavy hitter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That moment, the Baron and Luthien discovery, the reversed, the gender reversed Baron and Luthien discovery moment. It's reversed. It's, 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 I, I think we can do it. I think we can do it. Right. So yeah, she comes in. I like the transfixed thing. Right. He's going to, he's going to let her go. Right. Like he cuts it. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't come and rescue her from like where she's snared or whatever, but like she suddenly breaks through, like it suddenly ends, whatever experience it is that she's having exactly mm-hmm. suddenly ends. And after it ends, she sees him. And I think he would, like contrive this essentially. Yes. You know, this is how he would mean it to go. Um, and so again, it's lovely because it's a direct parallel to Baron and Luthien, that whole, like after this time of suffering and my incredibly traumatic journey, I now behold you in the dist in this moment of peace and in this oasis of calm. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and it except looks like she broke through. Yes. Yes. It looks like she broke through. Right. That she's one through. Yes, exactly. Right. They don't know that he. Exactly. And that's and that's the the whole lovely thing. Right. Whereas like Luthien is genuinely not knowing anything about, you know, Baron's appearance. Right. He contrived the whole thing. Right. He's going for this effect with her. And so, again, it's it's a direct parallel, but it's it's undermined. It's actually a kind of an anti-parallel, which is the whole point of the parallel in the first place. Right. To show that they are the anti Baron and Luthien and not just the same story. Um, Yes, though, of course, happening first. And so we have to remember that. But um, because it's the later story, it's the Baron and Luthien story that we're setting up. So we have to set we have to do that carefully here. Um, A careful anticipation. It's it's almost like one of those scenes. And I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but I know that this sort of scene exists where like the the main character the protagonist is having kind of this trippy experience mm-hmm. right and like this kind of fear-laden experience i feel right. like something in the matrix has has this one of the matrix films has something like this and then they're suddenly in a space where somebody starts talking to them like and that person then delivers like a a you know story ending exposition dump yeah, you're is, you're is how that Yeah. I think you're thinking of the Matrix scene where Morpheus shows up in the space with the, the white background and the armchairs. Well I think like I think there there it may actually be a scene from a later film, like when he meets the programmer or something uh, like okay. that. The yeah. architect. The architect. Yeah, the architect. Yeah. I don't like I don't remember liking that scene very much. But I think that had to that didn't have to do with the structure of the scene. It was just mm-hmm. I think I feel like I was already I already had it with the film by then. Yeah, I yeah yeah no I think that moment 
her coming out of it, whatever she was coming out of, kind of recovering and then discovering him. Right. Um, so that it does look like she has made it through her own strength. Right. And then finds him there in the middle. And he he won't be like standing and facing her. Right. She will see mm -hmm. him like from the side, basically, right? as if yeah. it were incidental. Again, recalling Luthien, although he's not going to be dancing. Right. What's he going to yeah. be doing? He should be doing something that's natural to him. Like right. he should be doing something that he does. So like he could be working a bloomery or something like that right. to, you know, in the smelting of metal. Like, yeah, mm -hmm. like, like just mm -hmm. shoveling coal. Like, like, could you imagine this, this shoveling enormously coal. power <laughs> individual? It's <laughs> a good look. Like shoveling coal into his smelt, into <laughs> his smelter and then turning around to start talking to her. Right. We had suggested that he was doing something to control the magic of the forest and that the audience would see that. So I'm not saying he has a magic mirror to look into, but he has something. <laughs> I, I was kind of having vague magic mirror thoughts as well. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know exactly yeah. what right. So that would whatever look like. he has that he's been using to control the magic, he's probably been putting his focus and attention on that. Yes. And if he turns away from that to see her, that would the audience would know what he was doing, but she wouldn't. This is just one of his devices in his workshop. Right. This is Melian's grove. Yes. Right? This is the very grove yes. where Melian met Thingol. Yes. And so it should, to a very canny viewer, remind us of Melian's grotto in Menegroth that we've spent a little bit of time in. Right? It doesn't have to look exactly like it, but there should be enough there that if somebody watches it after the fact, right, they go back and rewatch. They go, oh, that's amazing because that looks a lot like this other place. And it's, it, you know, that's how, like, that's like the control center, right? I'm using a very technological term there, but it's the control center. Right. Um, right. So like the, like the waterfall, like we had like a waterfall thing in her, her grotto where she um, ensorcels uh, Galadriel. Using water, I mean, yeah. if he's standing next to a pool, looking down into the pool, mm -hmm. that doesn't look creepy, you know? I mean, like no. it's, and, and yeah, it's true that if the viewers got a flash of him looking down into the pool and seeing her suffering in the pool, right, mm. with some kind of subtle implication that he was causing it, um, then that's all the better. Right, because then she doesn't realize. Then there's some dramatic irony, right, where the viewer realizes that this is a sketchier situation than it looks like, but she wouldn't have reason to do that. Yeah. Okay. I wonder if we could put flashback, if we could do that, like in flashbacks later on when she's realizing the situation that she's in. It's possible that we can have. Right now. We could have Ale do his magic. Pool, thing on somebody else gazing thing yeah at a later time and at that point the viewer would be like hey isn't what that what he did to Arabel when she showed up so yeah yeah it's possible like that. that the audience's first glimpse of ale can be Arabel's first glimpse of ale if we want yes. it to be like can, i right, kind of like that i kind of prefer that yeah i okay. kind of prefer that yeah because it, it was a question of how to do the build-up so. yeah no that's true because we don't want to review it to them right away we we 
we want to string the viewers along into thinking that he's just a dark, handsome elf stranger living in the woods whom everyone else has overlooked and marginalized, right? And mm-hmm. she's finally well, going to give him a chance. We wanted to make sure there was a lot of, like, negative stuff said about him. Right. So that the viewers would be like, oh, Aradel's being warned against this guy. Yep. But really, he's, you know, a prince in disguise who's totally going to be a, you know, like, we yep. wanted the viewer to kind of disregard some of the negative stuff to give him a chance yep yep rather than try to convince them that he's really okay right right because that's more suspicious looking <laughs> right right in right. episode four there's going to be stuff that the viewer is going to be like the red flag is going to start popping up right right and then mm-hmm. in um in episode the next episode where we have them i don't remember the top of my head it's not important but that's when we when we drop the bomb that no this guy is not right okay right no. yeah yeah, this was a this was a, a manipulation and power play by him from the beginning, right, right. Okay, okay, I like that. Yeah, um, and if he's standing there doing something, I could. I mean, I could get behind the idea of him forging, especially if him forging or like chanting over a weapon or something. You know, to it's, it's some I don't know something, something that that that's him. Like, but it also, but it has to be something impressive, right? Not mm-hmm. impressive in the same way that Luthien dancing is impressive, but it should be spellbinding in some way. Like she should be looking at this and being like, "Wow, doesn't he look a impressive and b dreamy?" Right. Right. So the transfiction isn't. I don't know if you can use transfix that way, but it doesn't <laughs> necessarily like he's, it's something he's personally doing. It right. could be. Right. But it doesn't have to be that, you know, like if he's, if he's got like, um, if he has, I, I can't imagine he'd be doing any further work on, on, on the, on his sword at this point. Right. No, but he could be making something else. I mean, you know, and like passing his like if he's passing his hand on the over the runes as he's kind of like, like, um, like mutter singing. You know, mm-hmm. like he doesn't have to be like actually singing. Right. Um, right. Although I believe, if I memory serves, I think that Mark Strong can sing. Um. But. Yeah. No. I mean, I, it was, she came here looking for an ally. Right. So right. she's she sees him making an obviously, you know, potent weapon or piece of armor or something like and that. We, and we see like the runes that are carved into it glowing under his fingers yes. as he's. Yes. Yeah. You know, as he's enchanting it. Yeah. Th- that's yeah. a good look. I mean, that's, you know, if you're trying to if you're if you're trying to grab the romantic attention of the Arathel character we've been developing, that's not a bad way to go about it. You know, mm-hmm. it's a good look. It's a good look. Yeah. And it's something like it's magical, but it's not suspicious. Right. No, 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 not suspicious. Not suspicious. It's powerful. It's got, again, good ally, right? Excellent ally <laughs> material right here. Um, clearly. Yes. And hot would be the other thing. Right? I mean, there does have to be that element in it. I mean, you know, uh, some kind yeah, of I hear, crush. I hear, I hear hunched is in this year. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, he is a tall elf lord. Um, he would be taller if he wasn't hunched over. <laughs> she went there looking for an ally. Right. She didn't necessarily know what to expect. So if she is pleasantly surprised by whom she finds, then it works. Yeah. Yeah. And he would be consciously... He is flattered by her, as you guys were suggesting, but he also would be flattering her deliberately as well. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, he is deliberately turning on the charm. His from yeah. from his angle, right? No one else has come this far into my into my forest, you know. Yeah, he would compliment her strength. Uh, I mean, we talked about him as a sort of narcissistic, abusive personality, right? Yeah. Um, and people with narcissistic, abusive personalities can be extremely charming. Right. Mm -hmm. um, especially at the outset of a relationship. And so we show that. Right. He is charming to her because he's trying to. It's part of the ensnaring process. Right. Deliberately. Um, I, yeah. I met a few years ago. I met a, um, a friend of my wife's fiance. I met him and um, I've been in sales for a long time. Uh, so I can usually recognize when somebody is being too complimentary right you know and that was the immediate pr um impression that i got right like okay what are you selling <laughs> sir <laughs> because you don't need to sell anything to me right right um and then of course things fell apart very very quickly um so it would su surprising me not even a little bit um <laughs> But like I can, I like you know these guys. Like it when once you've met a few of them, you know these people, mm -hmm. and you know when. But it's a well, kind the kind of thing. we'd like him to be good at it. Though, He's good at it, and right. she wouldn't suspect it. She wouldn't. Yeah. She would not be a, thinking a these directions. They never do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, a person like this finds out what the other person is looking for and becomes right. that. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And she's not going to hide what she was looking for because she doesn't have a reason to. So she's giving him some ammunition to present himself a particular way. Yes. And this is what we gain from giving her, having her consciously go into to non Elmoth to find him is that that's clearer. She's not just maiden in distress. Who's wandered into the dark forest. Um, yeah. As far as like, yeah, yeah. And anytime that you buy a car, if your salesman has any, is at any good at what they do, they're going to sit you down. They're going to ask you about you. Right. And they're going to get you to talk about what you do in your car and right. what kinds of things you like about your car and yes. what any trips that you're planning in the future. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, like, the whole purpose of that entire interview is to load up, you know, load them up with everything they need to paint the picture right. of you driving in this car. Right. <laughs> They're going right. to sell you. Yeah. You know, so and... him selling her on himself uh, will be 
that will be able to happen efficiently on screen which, because of this. Which yeah. he accomplishes by getting her to sell herself to him. Right. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. Job interviews are so effective. Right. They use the concept of fear of loss to get you to sell yourself to them when they are the one who, ones who need somebody there. Right. Right. Let's talk about the silent servants then. What do okay. we want to do with the silent servants? First of all, what are, are like they? the they're they are they like they're like our first hint on screen that something's not quite right. Well, they're certainly different, right? And they've got to be different in an unsettling kind of way. Mm-hmm. I feel like they're permanently transfixed. Like they've been living in this forest for so long at this point that they are permanently transfixed by him. That's what are why they? they don't talk. Are they elves? Are they spirits? I think... Oh, I was definitely picturing them as elves. Yeah. I wasn't I... picturing them as like his claymation created. <laughs> or something. I yeah. with the idea of them being dwarves, <laughs> but. The idea of them being dwarves. I briefly toyed with it, but I, I don't think that that's... Yeah, it's harder. Yeah. Weirder. And dwarves Sorry. are particularly resistant to domination anyway, Exactly, so. yeah. Having them be under his sway like that really wouldn't work. Um, okay. So he's got a bunch of elves, but the relationship between him and his elf servants is just, like, pretty quickly apparent. Not in this episode, but fairly quickly will become apparent that it's of a different and unhealthy kind. Mm-hmm. So all we need in this episode is one or more silent footmen, like basically elves just sort of standing there like a footman would stand um, in a 19th century household, saying nothing, doing nothing until needed. That would be weird. We don't... we. We have not shown elvish servants acting like that. But it also wouldn't be so weird. I mean, because there's context for that, right? I mean, it's not unknown to the viewers that you would have servants standing, uh, you know. Well, I'll tell you, if they're not part of the story in this scene, um, which in the way that we've constructed the scene, they aren't. I would say they actually might be a little distracting. And, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. I certainly do re- agree re- with Ron, and they shouldn't up. be there during the first meeting. Um, right. So know. so anything that we see of them, the first time we see them really is going to be in episode three. Mm-hmm. And there, there can be some kind of mildly creepy things like, um, like they're, you know, they're serving them food and whatnot. And uh, Arathel thanks one of them and they just kind of like, don't, really respond right. to that right and she thinks that's a little weird right and you know like again where there's a lot of beauty in the beast in this so it's yeah you know yeah. like we're telling we're telling the audience this guy's got some rough edges but right you know um but like she's gonna she's gonna win him over is right. what we're telling the audience that she's gonna win him over to do great things yeah Spoiler alert, that's not going to happen. Right. No, it, it it has a very Beauty and the Beast feel, which is good. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's yeah. that's 
that's good. I mean, that's exactly we want, the... We want to be capturing fairy tales, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it if should I have a fairy tale feel. every Grimm's fairy tale on the way <laughs> down. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree. I agree. Um, and I mean, it, I, I mean, it's it's not even check. like it. I mean, this is like a Beauty and the Beast, but it's like a Beauty and the Beast gone bad. Yeah. Fairy tale story. I mean, that's. I think that's legit. It's Beauty and the Beast without the actual eucatastrophe or true love right. element right. to the story. It's what really happens when a guy who looks like a monster locks you in his castle. Right. <laughs> Like right. spoiler, normally people, that doesn't end well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All the things that we people complain about in the Beauty and the Beast story, we're gonna fix that. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. We, um we see you twenty to thirty something women. We see you. It turns out he does not have a heart of gold, actually. Yes. Sometimes. Yep. Agreed. Okay. No, I like it. Uh that's good. That's good. Uh Lots of salutary life lessons. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm making my, do I have time to go on to another slide face? And I think the answer is no. I don't oh, have time to go oh, on to another so slide. Sad right now. Uh, I think that's clear. So there's obviously the B plot that we need to talk about. Um, and the C plot is just Fingen, right? Isn't it Fingen? C plot? C plot is Fingolfin, but it's the the C plot and the B plots are kind of intertwined. Okay, all right, that's why. Yeah. So what we have left to talk about is everything that's happening in Nargothrond, which includes Fingolfin, right, visiting Mm -hmm. them, right, and um, Beor and Adenal. With the ironic uh, effect of showing the audience that Fingolfin wasn't at home anyway, so Ardell turns out to have been completely right not to head straight up there. She'd have been wasting her time anyway. No one is at home is the theme of this episode. Right. <laughs> yeah. The uh, yeah. So <laughs> no one is at home the, except the Aeol. That's the problem. Yeah. Is be the B plot and the C plot. Yeah. Right. Okay. And the C plot is the men centric side. The B plot is the elf centric side. Right. Okay. Okay. That's cool. Ending existence. <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. Um. All right. Well, we will come back to the BNC plot and touch on the frame, which is very brief in this uh, in this episode. But that's that's all that's all good. Um, okay. So preparation for next time. Then, in our next session, we will talk about the BNC plots. Um, <laughs> but we will also we're also going to be planning to do um, uh, music. So our next in between episode session uh, discussion will be about music. We're going to be talking with Philip Menzies, our composer, who's been uh, working with some film from season one, um, and uh, we're going to be talking through some preliminary ideas and stuff in anticipation of hopefully some more musical performances at the end of the season. Um, and so here are my questions for next time as we're thinking about the music stuff. What themes from season five do we want to capture in musical themes? What are, what are like new things that we really want to that, that we want to talk about with Phil so that he can think about trying to capture those? Like we've had many of the the sort of central ideas of earlier seasons um, get kind of embodied within particular recurring musical themes. What things do we want to uh, do and what those what might those be like? So that's one issue that we'll want to talk about with Phil. 
Which musical themes from previous seasons will we want to incorporate or modify in season five? That's been another thing. We've had continuity with the music, right? But often it's been kind of shifting and and uh, uh, and adapting to what's going on in that season. So what kind of connections, what kind of developments would we see in some of the, the, the themes that we've been looking at before? And then we're going to need men themes, right? And themes for the different houses of men, presumably. Um, we've done, you know, we've done that before. Um, and of course, I'm remembering the themes that he, you know, he made an elf theme and then he made the three different variations on that theme for the different houses of uh, of, of the elves. This was back in season two uh, when he introduced this. Um, are we going to go for a similar thing with humans? Is it going to be is it going to be parallel? Will the differences between the different kind of themes for the families be different in some way? How how should we go about doing this? I think that would be another interesting conversation to have. So definitely invite folks to be thinking about those things, to be uh, putting particular suggestions or particular um, uh, just sort of... Uh, Either suggestions for answers to these questions or sort of further questions or uh, or or uncertainties or uh, contemplations um, that we can then bring up and talk uh, with Phil about when we meet with him. So our next session will be three weeks from tonight uh, because two weeks from tonight is New Year's Eve, I think. So we're not going to do that. Um, I figure between 10 p.m. and 12 a.m. Eastern time, some folks might have other plans on New Year's Eve. Um, But who knows? Uh, Anyway, but we're not going to be here. So um, we're going to meet on the 7th. Then we're going to meet again on the 14th to get back to our original schedule. So we'll actually have three sessions in January. um, But it'll be three weeks until our next one. And it'll be 2021 by the time we meet again. So... That is the plan. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining me. Thank you, Nick and Marie and Dave, for being uh, here tonight. This has been uh, this was a a fun discussion Um, and uh, look forward to finishing uh, that off for next time. So I will say, as always, thanks for listening and Godspeed. Thank you so much for having us on tonight. Very good. No problem. Thanks for never, never ceases to amaze me the amount of hay we can make out of. No, like, <laughs> I, I think when people think of Silmarillion, they don't think of like Aradell as like one of the like really key storylines. It's true. There's so much good stuff. So much good yeah. stuff. So much potential. Yeah. Uh, so many wonderful things to, to kind of bring out. Uh, and, uh, uh, a lot of really important issues. So that's good. I might suggest um, instead of like picking up this stuff that we left off uh, in the next session, actually doing it in the following session. Cause you can just go right into the death of Bayor from there. Okay. Um, okay. You know, like, yeah. so we do and jazz music can, next time. This and way then... you can do, yeah. This yeah. way you can kind of focus yeah. on the music. Yeah. yeah, we'll we'll give we'll give Phil the whole session if you want to, sure. um, and it's yeah, yeah. We can save the plot stuff for the uh, yeah. the next week because I think it'll be the the fourteenth will be the next week. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. it will just be the next week. So, okay, yeah. that makes sense. Good plan. Good plan. All right. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. See you guys you. in three weeks. 
Take care. Y'all in 21, 2021. 2021. That's it. Can't wait. <laughs> a brand new year. I feel like people were saying that last year, though. So, <laughs> well, they were wrong, and we can be right. <laughs> that's, that's it. That's, right. that's it. It's a, it's a brand new year, but the uh, same old global pandemic. Hey, you know, th- 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 things are changing. Things are changing. Um, yeah. Oh, hey, I see Phil saying, I hope I can come up with enough for a whole session. First of all, don't worry about it because we will. We have all this stuff to talk about if we want to yeah. start talking about it True. next time. So no worries. But also, yeah, Phil, remember, don't, don't worry. Have not, a problem. It's not like you have to, like, you know, compose all the stuff for next time. We're just going to be talking about yeah. stuff. So there will be right. plenty yeah. of stuff to talk about. Yep. We don't seem to have any trouble. Yeah. Filling up the time. Talking yeah. for hours about the tiniest details ever. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I have to say, you yeah. know, I got I to gotta admit, when I first read the outline, I was a little dubious. I was like, gosh, yeah. this is, uh, wow. Okay. I mean, like, the changes yeah. with the Ardo yeah. plot, I was, I was, yeah. I was not sure. I was not blown away on a first read, but I'm convinced. Yeah. Now. I'm convinced. Yeah. Well, it's, it, I took some convincing as well. So. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still bummed we didn't get to spend more time on the silent servants. We'll get there. We'll, we'll get them. We'll, we'll, we'll get, get them. Right, get the role yeah, of the silent no servants in future episodes. We'll, least, we'll have more opportunity to include them. Um, uh, I mean, hey, I, I, hey, I, if you like talking endlessly about tiny little details, <laughs> you should stop in for an for one of the actual script discussions. Script discussions? <laughs> right. It is. Yeah, I it might is do that. Nearly painful. Nearly. <laughs> nearly painful. Sounds like it. But Excellent. yeah, you're welcome anytime. All right. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, that'd be cool. Okay. All right. Thanks, everybody. See you guys Take next care. year. Although the theoretical budget of our hypothetical blockbuster may be unlimited, the production budgets of this and the rest of our fun alternative educational projects are unfortunately not. If you have enjoyed joining our production team, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org fund.